Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the 11th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we are focusing on the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Last week, we were had Tom Costello joining us, and we dug into institutional finance. And um, as we did that, we, we tried to help people understand what the institutional finance actually is, how they manage money differently than the retail investor. Um, Tom Costello has a long and storied career inside institutional finance. And so he uh, gave us a lot of information last week. We left a cliffhanger in there as we were going to get into the Fed and interest rates. So we're going to jump right back into that. Um, Quick disclaimer, as always, that this is not meant to be financial advice for you. This is meant to be informational and lets you take this to run by your own finance team as you make your own decisions here. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about a hedge fund that Tom and I are both partners in. And so I don't want any in any way for this to feel manipulative towards you, but really informational about the um, macro level investment or investment um, industry. We'll just go there. So um, Tom Costello, for those of you who weren't on last week, Tom is the, uh, he's the author, author of a book called The Front Office. He is a, uh, he's been in the quantitative finance world for over 30 years now, got a story career inside the hedge fund investment space with some of the largest um, uh, hedge funds and the the best best known hedge funds in the world. And he's had an incredible track record there. Um, when he was in charge of trading for these different funds, he had gone, he had never had a down year um, for any for any of the time that he was in charge of trading there. So uh, long story career there. And where we left off, Tom, was the Fed and interest rates. And so I want to jump right back into that. Um, we had just gone over a little bit of, of where the banking industry is at. And now we are going to get into the Fed. So obviously everyone, you know, crypto, we're going to, we're going to talk more about crypto this, this week. Crypto is not a focus of the media unless it's something to do with SBF and some, you know, fraudulent activity. But right now everything in the media is about inflation and interest rates. So can you give us a little bit of background, maybe how we got here and, and then we'll, we'll go after where the Fed stands now. Sure. Well, how we got here depends on how far back you go. Uh, <laughs> Fair. The, way, the way we really got here was uh, we uh, elected a bunch of people from both parties who were completely irresponsible about public spending. And mm-hmm. they spent vastly more money than we will ever, ever be able to repay with tax revenue. So uh, it's, it's cer- certainly since 2008, 2009, when George Bush implemented his plan to save the banks, which I disagreed with, by the way. Uh, from that moment on, it became irrevocable that we will inevitably default on our debt. Not soon, because there's a great deal of confidence in the U.S., and rightly so. But inevitably, we're going to, because we cannot possibly continue to pay off our existing debt by issuing new debt. That's what we're doing right now. And when you see the deficit increase, that's what they're actually talking about. They always spin those numbers really hard. Right. But uh, in essence, what we're doing is we're paying off one credit card with another credit card. Now, COVID didn't help 
shutting down one third, you know, shutting down the, the global economy, uh, it was a bad idea. You couldn't get that to restart and run as smoothly as it did initially. So some of the reactions to that have caused greater inflation. But, uh, but really the problem has been excess public spending, spending way, way, way more money than we would ever be able to collect from tax revenue. Right now, the money that they're debating spending right now is probably going to be tax revenues from your and my great, great grandchildren. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's if things start to moderate. Then it could be considerably worse than that. Fair. So, yeah, okay. everybody knows that this is going to end in calamity. Uh, they don't know when. And that's always the big question, right? Right. But uh, but everybody knows eventually the U.S. will default on its debt. Maybe they won't pay foreign foreign debt holders, or I don't know. There's probably quite a bit of mileage yet between here and there. So okay, All right. Thank you. Here. So now, what position? So this is something that since you and I have known each other, you have been saying that the, the Fed's and they're in a no-win situation. Absolutely, you know, is it? It's lose either way they go with this. Um, and now even the most brilliant people, if, if, if only the brilliant people were in charge of this and there was no political um, component to any of the decision-making, they're still screwed. So where does the Fed sit now? So actually, the people in charge of the Fed are fairly brilliant people. These are very, yeah. very intelligent, very well-informed, exceptionally uh, careful and thoughtful people who have bad data to manage and have irresponsible children in Congress handing out money to people. So, uh, yeah, the Fed has no choice. They're going to break something. And, and they have apparently chosen to break the banking industry by raising interest rates too rapidly, which made it impossible for some of the less well-run banks to hedge themselves properly, and that caused a liquidity crisis. So yeah. you're going to get a few more banks fall by the wayside. We had this in 1990 when I was brand new in the industry. The savings and loans were still falling down periodically because of interest rate changes because they didn't manage that row risk, as we mentioned last time. And that yep. uh, they had that duration mismatch where they needed money today, but they couldn't get it for another three years. So uh, the Fed was always in a position where if they raise interest rates, they increase the cost of capital for the government. If they leave interest rates too low, they cause inflation. Yeah. So there was never a way that they were going to get one, or they weren't going to get one or the other. Something bad was going to happen. I have consistently believed that in the end, the thing they will be comfortable with is more inflation because uh, political pressure doesn't come from voters feeling inflation pressure. Political pressure comes from congressmen who want the cost of capital to be low. So... Uh, it, the Fed's independent. It has no direct report. It's not like they can fire somebody to Congress, but there is jawboning pressure. There is political pressure. Yeah. And the Fed feels that the same as anyone else. So that's where they are. Irrevocable. It's no getting out of it. Okay. How does the the average, and so again, we're, we're you know, last week we, we hit a lot on the difference between retail investor and institutional investor. Um, let's speak to the retail investor. How does the how does this affect the retail investor that they're not even aware of right now? Well, inflation is a known quantity. It can be hedged with regard to your investment, right? Uh, there's nothing that 
uh, an investment manager or an economist or anybody can do to make your eggs cheaper. Right. They're going to be expensive. Uh, but in terms of your investment capital, you can hedge your investment capital with uh, hard assets. So precious metals. Some would say real estate is a, is a useful uh, in inflation hedge if you're not over-levered, if you have the appropriate amount of leverage involved. Right. It's a hard asset, certainly. They're not making any more of it. Uh, and, you know, other currencies will be inflating at varied rates relative to the U.S. dollar. Certainly crypto is, uh, it, it hasn't really demonstrated this up to now because there's been so much speculative energy in the crypto space. But right. in the end, it will be a very effective inflation hedge. Let's go there. So the, um, well, I guess what, what I'm going to speak to now and for the audience, I'm, I'm really going to try to gear this toward not, this is not going to be introduction to cryptocurrency. That's, that is, there's too much out there. there there's tons of great information out there. There's, there's probably way more bad information, but there's plenty of good information out there. Like 99 Bitcoin is a, is a YouTube channel that has a really, uh, has a lot of good information. It's broke down pretty simple to help you understand the, the simple mechanics of the cryptocurrency industry. Um, so what I want to do is really talk to someone who's followed crypto when it, when it was hot in the media. You know, they they spent time studying NFTs because they were told that NFTs were going to be the future of everything and everything was going to be an NFT. And so they, they were talking to people who have spent some time studying this. So to the to set the stage of the audience here, that um, that's who you know the level we're going to speak at. Um, you know, now all they hear though, or you know about cryptocurrency now is you, know, you got SBF, you've got FTX collapse, you got Celsius and three arrows and as all those things happen in the cryptocurrency industry stopped having these massive gains that the media wanted to report on instead had these massive blowups. So now the only thing that's in the in the media for crypto is is the the drama. It's the blowups, right? And so can you take those people who, you know, had done some degree of studying about this and bring them up to speed on where's crypto at today? Sure. Uh, well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, uh, I wouldn't call myself a crypto true believer. A crypto true believer is a different kind of animal than me. I, I reserve my belief for a specific domain in my life that has nothing to do with believing in people who promote cryptocurrency. Yep. Uh, crypto. I do, however, believe that crypto is going to be uh, an ongoing asset class. I don't believe it's going to zero. And because I don't believe it's going to zero, I know that its current state is much closer to the bottom than the top. Um, the largest and best well-known and most well-known cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ether, are uh, well-established. Now, there's some debate in the U.S. about the regulatory framework that applies to them. But they are well established as an asset class and globally getting a great deal of acceptance. They are not perfect. There are, uh, if you want to get into the fur, there's, there's quite a bit of hair on them. But um, as an asset class, broadly speaking, the large, well traded, well liquid cryptocurrencies are very, very well established as a, a speculative asset class. Yeah. Maybe it's a maybe it's a commodity, maybe it's a security, maybe it's a currency. For our purposes, we don't really care. Those are just words; they're descriptors, right? And for the regulation that applies to them, that'll matter, but right. not for us. Right. If we believe it's going to go up, we buy. If we believe it's going down, we sell. That's what we do. 
Okay. Um, it seems like since we, we referenced this last last week of we, you know, you're at a trade show uh, and the you know industry, not a trade show, but an industry conference for the actually for the um, the money managers themselves. And it wasn't meant to be for the retail investor there. And where the year before you had 75 hedge funds there. And then this past year, there were 15. And there was a, a lot of people who got liquidated and their funds got liquidated or, or they're still tied up. Um, right now as well. The And so what I, what it seems like inside the industry is obviously when you have that type of growth that was in there and, and the ability to make so much money, a lot of people came at it. A lot of people who weren't qualified to do it came at it. And a lot of people who had ill intentions came at it. And we're seeing a lot of them have been exposed. And so it seems like the cream is really rising to the top here. For f- inside you know, front office um and, and and what what's happening inside inside the fund? How do you differentiate the real players from those who are pretending? You mentioned last week that in November we had the best performance of any cryptocurrency hedge fund in the world, according right. to Barclays Hedge. Uh, so while we were at this conference, our other partner Mike and I, I I spoke on a panel, and at one point I I asked everybody to raise their hands. I said, "Okay, how many of you had money at FTX?" And, maybe 15, 18 hands went up. I said, okay, how many of you understood what was going on at FTX well enough to get all your money out without PL impact before it all happened? And everybody in the room put their hands down except for our partner, Mike. And that was the reason we did so well in November. It's because we were able to identify the, the macroeconomic stresses that were being applied to FTX just in advance of their declaring bankruptcy. We saw the writing on the wall, and because Mike had done some really great work with our back office, we were able to transfer all our money off of FTX just as the gate came down. So all our money got off at 2 p.m. At 4 p.m., they declared bankruptcy. The gate came down. Nobody was allowed to get their money off. So that wiped out a huge number. of, And those that it didn't wipe out, it had a big negative impact on their P&L for that month. So even though our performance was relatively modest for our ambitions. It was about 5% that month. Uh, we were still the best in the world. Yeah. So that's that's the kind of difference that you see. There's a lot of people got into the hedge fund business assuming that it's the same thing as trading their own money is just bigger. And that isn't the case. There's there's a great deal you need to understand about counterparty risk, about, about risk assessment broadly that uh, you just can't learn on your own, that you really need to be taught it. Uh, at least I've never met anybody who's taught themselves real risk management. Uh, even Sam Bankman-Fried is a good example of a guy who believed he understood everything about risk management. The truth right. is, he really did not. Right. The and so we're, we're gonna we're gonna jump into some some details about about our fund and and how you <laughs> manage that. Um, but before we do that, the institution as a whole, the, the excuse me, the industry as a whole is something that we have. Thought isn't the right word, but it, it's not far off. Um, we have we have really wrestled with trying to to bring the industry up as a whole. And you have you have incredibly intelligent people inside the cryptocurrency industry, Absolutely. but a lot of them lack the financial knowledge to to understand how to do things the proper way. And you know the idea of, of Celsius saying we're gonna we're gonna reinvent banking. Well, there were there were rules of banking that are there for a reason. And when you 
don't abide by them, you see what happens. And so, and obviously there, there's more to that story as well. And I won't get you started on that one. Um, well, no, I do want to throw one, one little detail in here and I don't, okay. this isn't meant as a slander, but a great many of the people that are currently occupying senior roles in the cryptocurrency space yep. came from the venture capital world. And in order to be successful in the venture capital world, you need a certain set of things. You need charisma and you need a vision and you need, uh, you know, the ability to persuade others to embrace your vision and things like that. Those things, that sort of vision is exactly the thing that leads to failure in trading. So yeah. the thing that you do to succeed, the, the kind of person you need to be to succeed in venture capital and the kind of person you need to be to succeed in trading are two very, very different people cognitively. Uh, and the industry knows this. We've studied it a great deal. Sam Bankman Freed, for his many, many faults, was the kind of person who the venture capital world thought would do very well. He had the vision, he had the appropriate level of charisma, he was odd enough or whatever to persuade others to join him. Uh, he was clearly a very, very intelligent person. Mm -hmm. It's just that there was a whole lot he didn't know. And he didn't know he didn't know it. He was a, a suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. When someone yeah. is so incompetent, they lack knowledge of their own incompetence. And there's more than a little bit of that in the cryptocurrency space, though, much less now than there ever was. Three right. Arrows is a famous hedge fund that went bankrupt. Celsius was another one that went bankrupt largely because of the same things that uh, that got Silicon Valley Bank in trouble. But it's that first rule of banking that they didn't really appreciate. Right. right. So was it a Ponzi scheme or anything like that? You know, sometimes those things are hard to identify. But uh, but it was certainly an error. I don't, I, you know, they went bankrupt. Clearly, there was an error made. Yeah. Right? Well, and when we were... Errors have to feel I was going to say, when, when we were first looking at Celsius, as that came to our attention and we looked at that, is that something that the fund should... Because those are attractive rates. Should the fund be interested in that? And you, you looked at that and you... I mean, you didn't... It wasn't a three seconds and no, but it was, it wasn't much more than ten seconds. You, you know, I understand. Okay, let me understand this. Yeah, that that's not going to work. And you're able to pick it, pick it apart. And I think, I think as a whole, the industry is starting to come up to speed a little bit. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about a carry trade in a little bit here and what a struggle that's been trying to to bring the industry along with you. You know, from your traditional finance background to help the industry be able to perform to the same legitimacy that we're used to. So it seems like it, it's on the rise, but it has not been a, um, it hasn't been an overnight thing by any means. That's, that's been a struggle here trying to get the industry as a whole, the banking and every other component behind cryptocurrency to, to come up. The, the tech yeah, is phenomenal. The U.S. regulatory, lack of a U.S. regulatory framework has certainly made things more difficult. We've had to international, you know, go offshore with a portion of our business, which we didn't originally intend. Right. Uh, even I saw an uh, interview today with uh, the head of Coinbase, who is there engaging in the process of opening an international exchange just right. because the U.S. isn't keeping up with the rest of the world in terms of regulation. But yes, I, and I've spoken to other people who came from a background similar to mine who are now in the crypto space, and they have the same sort of criticisms. It's just even on the brokerage side. It doesn't tend to be, it's really organized around uh, retail trading. It's not really organized around the kind of products that institutions typically engage in. And you mentioned carry trade. Would it be all right if I... I, I uh, why, don't we, why don't we first give a background into Bedrock? And so 
Sure. If you were to so so Bedrock is a hedge fund that that Tom, myself, and then one other partner, Michael, who we referenced earlier. Um, so we we own this hedge fund here, and so we do operate in, inside the cryptocurrency industry. Um, Tom, will you give give the audience a listen to this? And and let's go ahead and be honest with this. And if this comes off as a shameless plug. I'm sorry, that's not the intent of this. Intent is to be educational and informational. Um, but it no, go ahead, just talk talk about the, talk about who we are, what we're what we're doing. Sure. Well, we're a quantitative hedge fund, and our goal is to uh, build a risk profile so that we are outperforming the market in all circumstances. We have uh, we have been unable to do that over the last year because we've been unable to completely fulfill all of the risk components that we've been looking to implement. The cryptocurrency industry is unique in that um, those assets, which are most liquid, are all highly correlated to one another. So you, if you're technical, maybe you've heard of things like statistical arbitrage, which is a process that's well-established in the equity world. Statistical arbitrage relies upon the idea that not all equities behave exactly the same. If they, had, if they were all correlated to one another with a factor of one, meaning they all did exactly the same thing, all went up at the same time and down at the same time by the same amount, you wouldn't be able to do anything like statistical arbitrage. That process relies on some assets going up and others going down at different times in different ways. In crypto, you can't really do statistical arbitrage because the correlations are too high. There's nothing you can buy that'll go up when the others are going down. So uh, what we have to do is we have to differentiate ourselves in other and ways. Can I jump in? So arbitrage is something that's been a big focus inside the crypto industry, but not statistical arbitrage. This is, I just want to clarify that. that sure. Arbitrage, people- technically speaking, is buying it in Chicago and selling it in Singapore at exactly the same time. Yeah. There's a lot of people in the crypto industry that they base their business model on that, but that's a very, very competitive space. It is, for the most part, a technology arms race. The more money people spend on technology, the faster they get. And the traditional players in, this, in the traditional markets, people like uh, Jane Street, are deeply engaged in the cryptocurrency space now. And they are in the process of squeezing out all the smaller hedge funds who use that as a business model. So we don't do that. Right. So, yeah, the, oh, the, the, the arbitrage model that a lot of hedge funds have done where they've been able to produce great results, um, you see, they're seeing their alpha being squeezed out now. And, and that's a model that is probably going to go away and just go to the, the big few, just like it is in traditional finance as well. So, that's right. You've seen that, the, you know, four years ago, they did 20 plus percent. Three years ago, it was 13. Last year was eight. This year, they're going to get four. Next year, yeah. they're going to go negative. Yeah, it's just like trying to do arbitrage in traditional finance as of probably next year. So so difference between that and statistical arbitrage, as you're saying, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, statistical arbitrage is, uh, is buying some assets, selling other assets, and building a portfolio that has a profile. It's very similar to that gamma neutral, beta neutral, gamma neutral, real positive structure. Yep. So we're striving to do that. Uh, and we have a long gamma component We have that should do very, very well in when the market rises or falls. We have another one, which we have been unable to accomplish. And the main reason we haven't been able to do it is it's to do it the traditional way requires a broker to be your partner. We spent a year talking to every broker in the cryptocurrency industry. We right. couldn't get any of them to understand it. It was a, a relatively simple, it, 
certainly in the traditional hedge fund world, it's viewed as a very, very simple trade. So that is what's called the carry trade. Uh, one of the things that the crypto industry has is it has huge spreads. So uh, the relationship between various assets and their behavior, the, the degree of difference is enormous compared to what you traditionally see in, in equity finance or fixed income finance, or traditional currencies. So uh, a carry trade is something which is a, a very, very common trade in the currency business. Trillions every year are engaged in by hedge funds. And basically what you do is you borrow at one rate, say uh, U.S. Treasuries, and you lend at another rate. So you, you maybe short U.S. Treasuries to borrow that money. You get a bunch of money back when you do that. You take that money and you buy maybe Turkish sovereign debt, right? Turkish sovereign debt pays 23%. U.S. debt, you're paying 6%. So there's a huge spread there. You know, call it, I don't know, 10%. Well, when you, you still have a currency exposure because the Turkish lira pays you in Turkish lira and U.S. dollars is what you actually bought it with. So you have to hedge your currency exposure. You do that with a forward, pretty straightforward. And what you'll get is a return, which is completely market neutral. Market can go up, market goes down, doesn't matter. All you have to do is wait to the end of the forward and you collect your return. Yeah. So that's a traditional carry trade. To do something similar in the cryptocurrency space, we've done the math. And uh, if we build that out, working with a particular couple of assets, when we lever it up, we can get somewhere between 60 and 85% annualized return a year, fully hedged. So the market goes up, market goes down, market does not matter. It's right. completely structurally hedged. And we can still get somewhere north of 65% a year on a fully levered basis. Uh, to try the, the thing, the, the reason not many people are doing it is because the brokers just lack the sophistication to do their part on it. So we figured out another way to go about this, uh, where we're just implementing it now. Yeah. And I I don't want to go into any more detail about it than that. If somebody wants to talk about it, they're welcome yep. to reach out and we'll have that conversation. But it, we expect this to fill out our risk profile. And from this point forward, we should be in a position to deliver exactly the kind of risk profile that we've been helping to. Okay. It's been a, a long, painful uh, endeavor. But we can believe you, we're there now. Can you define um, a little bit of, of of what you don't have to go into the the deep specifics of, of our strategy, but for, on the long ball side, and just help people understand. So, to someone who a maybe has made some significant investment into cryptocurrency and they bought Bitcoin in 2015, and they're sitting on that and they they've seen the the wild ride that that's been, or um, or just anyone who's who's in the space and who's looking to to find a a hedge and a little bit more um p l stability inside that can you can you define a little bit of what what a long vol strategy is or or any detail into ours as well uh well what a long vol strategy is a long vol strategy is one where you would expect it to return higher performance uh when markets move very quickly okay when markets move a great deal you would expect them to perform better when they tend to oscillate in a fixed range, you would expect a long volatility strategy to, you hope, about break even, not lose much, maybe lose a little bit, 
Yeah, it depends depends on, on the fees that you're paying and all that. The fee, yeah, it depends on a lot of different things. Right. Uh, but that would be the goal. So we built a long ball strategy, which uh, takes two components into it. Well, many more than this in the end. But uh, what it does is it is a combination of a price-driven model and a behavior-driven model. So part of the data that we're analyzing is data that is not available in traditional capital markets. There's something called on-chain analytics, which is analyzing the flow of funds based on the information as it's recorded in the blockchain of that cryptocurrency. So we are analyzing that information and using that to color our model so that uh, during periods when we see large increases or, or large fall-offs, we should be able to return a profit. We actually have had periods where the market sold off and we made money on the sell-off. We're still fine-tuning it. We're still working on it. Uh, Every day we get a little bit closer. But, you know, we are a small fund. There's only so many hands. And uh, we're shoveling as fast as we can. Right. If you were to try to map out a little bit of of where you see the the cryptocurrency industry going or even um, if we get into any of the, you know, USDC type opportunity, can you maybe shed a little light on, on where you think, uh, let's, let's go after that. Let's go after any of these uh, central bank issued digital currencies. Can you, can you hit a little bit on that before we close out today? I'm dubious. I know the, the governments aspire to have central bank digital currencies. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that any population would tolerate it because it's going to allow a level of, uh, sort of totalitarian control that's been unprecedented. If you want a Chinese social credit score, U.S. central bank digital currency is the way you're going to get it. Uh, so, you know, if you want to make, uh, if, if, if you want to impose a vision, if you want to punish people for attending church, say, mm-hmm. central bank digital currency will give the government the, the ability to do that. Now, it won't give them the desire. That's got to come from other sources. But it will give them the ability to do it. And that's why I think I'm dubious about the idea of central bank digital currencies. Where are cryptocurrencies going? They are a part of the economic landscape. There's no getting rid of them. The fact that they are being, we, we get a distorted picture in the U.S. where we think there's a lot of debate about cryptocurrency. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it a there's no debate. The debate's over. It's just yeah. the U.S. is way, way behind on the debate. Internationally, it has been accepted. And people will say, well, you know, Bitcoin doesn't look like much of a currency to me compared to U.S. dollars. Well, no, compared to U.S. dollars, maybe it doesn't. But what about compared to Zimbabwe dollars? Correct. Or, uh, you know, the whatever. The, these, there's a billion people that live in Africa that can, cannot rely on their currency. To them, Bitcoin and Ethereum look like uh, salvation. Right. This is a this is an opportunity for them to have real assets in their hand, and that's uh, that's not going away. You know, not everything is the world's uh, currency of choice, right? The currency of trade. Yeah, well, that's a great point. First, I think so many of us here are trying to compare Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar, and yeah, and that, that's that a mistake. A, yeah, that's, I, I agree with that. You know. Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is, 
to quote my old boss, Paul Tudor Jones, he said, Bitcoin is a very, very fast horse. You want to win the horse race, you get a very fast horse. Bitcoin is a very fast horse. Well, the U.S. dollar is a, a Formula One car. The horse can't compete with a Formula One car. Fair enough. It still can beat every other horse. And yeah. there's a lot more horses out there. What do you think the people of Venezuela would give for Bitcoin as right. opposed to Venezuelan bolivars? Yeah. You know? There's plenty Good of point. people out there for whom this represents a really meaningful impact. It's just we don't see them in the U.S. And the U.S. vision is so inwardly focused. We think we're the only thing that matters. We are not. A billion people live in Africa. It's the fastest growing population in the world. Almost none of them have a reliable currency. Very, very, very few. And when I say reliable, I'm talking about Egypt, which compared to the U.S. is not a particularly reliable currency. Right. So the debate's over. Cryptocurrency is here. It's going nowhere. It's going to expand and grow. It's going to be a big deal. The question is, do you buy it now or do you buy it five years from now when the press starts thinking about it positively again? Right. You know, the press, the, my contempt for the, the press, for the news media, I stand behind no one in my utter contempt for them. I will go on at great length about this, as you well know. <laughs> he, he will. <laughs> but they will start talking about how great something is when it's at, at the top, when it's at mm -hmm. a new high. That is not the time you buy something. You buy something when no one else is, is engaged in it. So we've been telling people this very thing. And institutions know this. So the smartest institutions are buying into cryptocurrency now. They're you know getting long Bitcoin positions and long Ethereum positions. And when they need a hedge, they're going to come to us. Right. We're the thing that moderates their PL, that gives them a winning PL stream when their Bitcoin is losing money. Or the other way around, when they've engaged in some other trade that is, you know, taking it on the chin, we're going to be in a position to give them a positive return. Right. All right. Um, if, if someone wanted to find out about the hedge fund, they can go to, so our, our website is Bedrock Assets. Assets plural, so bedrockassets.io. But if someone wanted to find out more about you, Tom, if they wanted to get your book, if they wanted to um, follow you, how do they get? How do they find you? Well, my book is available on Amazon. It's called The Front Office, uh, and um, it's it's actually it was my first book. It sold really well for first yeah. book. Most first books supposed to sell about five hundred copies. I've sold just a hair under ten thousand now, and still selling a hundred a month. God knows how. I never advertised it. <laughs> strictly word of mouth i've guys from jane street is just a few blocks away from me they, some of them will literally call me up and say hey can you bring me a copy of your book? yeah okay all right so um, you can find your book there find you on linkedin linkedin you can find me on linkedin and yep. uh and you know obviously i'm i can be reached via the headset uh, the website yep okay happy to discuss Appreciate you. Appreciate your insight and the wisdom that you bring to this, and the the level of humility that you have with the incredible intellect that you carry as well. So, thank you for your time, Tom. Um, for next week, we are going to uh, bring Jeff Miller on. We're going to be kind of switching. So, this has been very tactical um, side of things with Tom the last two weeks. We're going to go after more of the practical side with Jeff next week as we focus on getting healthy with money. So Jeff will be on next week for that. Um, encourage you to check out the website. Encourage you to look at Tom's book. Um, encourage you to sub subscribe to this if you're finding this fruitful. And we will see you next week. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. 
And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.